0: Mickey Flanagan, hello. Hello there. You are on tour at the moment.
1: I am, yes.
0: With your show, What Chance Change. It's That's your first right. UK tour.
1: First time I've toured, yeah.
0: How's it going?
1: It's going really well. I'm loving it, loving it, loving it. It's really been an inspiration, you know, because being a club comic, you get really good at being a club comic and you know all the clubs and you sort of know how to work them and then suddenly you're out doing your own show and it's a different level of responsibility, a different sort of audience. It's, it's, it's great. It's been a lot of travelling and a lot of sort of uh, spending time on your own again.
0: I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from YesYesMarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off The Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. How'd you get from A to B? I've
1: been doing it on public transport. (laughs) It's It's been fun at times, and other times just miserable as ever. But I just don't want to get a car. I like public transport. I'm a big fan of public transport. (laughs) <laughs> he says you know but just drives you mad It's the announcements why do they keep giving you information all the time it's a train we sort of know what's going on there's a buffet car there's going to be a few stops you know a, can you leave us alone now you know they tell you what you can get in the buffet car and you just think <laughs> what's going on you know, who is sitting here thinking, oh, I'm not going there, I'm not sure what they've got? <laughs>
0: Have you met any naughty people? Do you meet people who say, where are you going? You say, I'm a comedian, then they want to be your friend.
1: Uh, I'm, I'm so not into chatting on the train that it's one of those awkward moments if someone starts a conversation where you think, right, how do you sort of be polite but imply that you're not a chatty person? You're not going to pass this journey by chatting to me. So maybe it might be a bit of a London thing but I don't really talk to people and you know, I just want to get where I'm going read my paper listen to some music maybe watch something it seems like that sounds horrib- no, sound no, horrible no no but I
0: think partly I think it is a London thing that if you're not in the habit of being chatty but also if you are travelling the whole time you might want a little bit quiet
1: I time. was so I've been up and down the country and spend, I've been so impressed by how polite and friendly people have been outside London that you do come away thinking London is such a tough city you know, and it's like, I was in Edinburgh and Glasgow and people were so polite. And it, Could we be like this in London? I don't know if it would be physically possible to be this. When I was at the train station the other day and a bloke asked the uh, ticket seller how he was. How are you today, he said. And he was like, what are you doing? What, what do you think that man, do you think he really wants to chat? You know, there's a queue here. It's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. But you know we could we can't all go. And how are you today? <laughs> well, I'm selling tickets today, if you'd like one. Because that's to be the only answer you could give. I'm telling but when you go to other places, you could see, you see people chatting and things like that. And and you know when you see people chatting the bank to the bank person and you ear and you think, not just put your money in and go. Yeah. We're not chatting to the person behind the thing. And you think, where did this mentality start? And it is how you think I mean it takes me probably at least a day when I'm away and I start to relax a little bit. And then I start, I I catch myself chatting to people and being more polite and friendly and, you know. Do you find that thing that at
0: first, when people are talking to you, you instantly go, who's the psycho? Why Um, are you talking to me?
1: Yeah. I'm always a bit concerned in London when someone talks because you're waiting for the moment where they ask you for some money or ask you for something. Over that, or they're just, you sort of check them out, don't you? you sort, they start talking and then you suddenly realise that they've only got one shoe on. And, <laughs> and you think, hmm. Or, or they're eating a great big family-sized bar of chocolate to themselves. And you think, probably not very well and this is not going to go anywhere, is it? It's going to culminate in you shouting at me or asking me for something.
0: <laughs> so yeah. that's a sensible, when you're in London, that's a sensible defence mechanism.
1: Yeah, and the other thing as well, if, if you're outside, like, there's only so much small talk you can make. I got on a plane once to go to Thailand to visit my sister and uh, she was living out there and an old man got on next to me <laughs> and there was 15 hours of this and he said, oh, awesome! son, yeah, I'm going to pick up my son's body, his dad, of an overdose. And uh, oh, my headphones, I mean, I'm sorry to hear that, mate, wallop my headphones It's like there is no room here for me to go, oh, really? Let's Tell me your story, my friend. I've, we've got 15 hours to kill here.
0: When people ask you what you do, do you say, I'm a comedian, I'm on tour? Because that's going to invite a whole lot of chat.
1: I do, yeah. I. Uh, you know, one of the things about being a stand-up is that people do seem very interested in your job, even more so than you would seem to sort of it's almost to the point where you think don't it's not that interesting really it's well, what I do but and, and and you feel a little bit you can be in with a group of people and everyone's asking you about your job and it feels a little bit awkward and horrible because you you don't want to be that much at the center of attention simply because of what you do when you're out having a drink with people and you know inevitably they'll start telling you who they think's funny and asking who you think's funny and, and, and they'll say oh I don't know how you do it and it, you know there's a general pattern that goes on and you don't want to be rude so you, you'll answer these questions but I try to seize on the opportunity to ask someone what they do and bizarrely they say oh well I sort of uh, I work with uh, children who are returning to care something that you would be genuinely interested in and you ask them and they go oh isn't this, this, not even, they don't even tell you about their job. Are you ever tempted to lie, though, and just say you do a different <laughs> job? Is that, I think if you ask a lot of comedians, they will, if they feel they're going to be on like a long journey or they're having to talk to somebody, they or they're trapped in a certain situation, they will give the job before they became a comedian.
0: Listen, I wanted to ask you about your job, because you, okay, you came into comedy sort of relatively late, you yeah. were in school, and then you left school early, and you started working at Billingsgate Fish Market.
1: Yeah, yeah, my, my dad had been a Billingsgate fish porter for like 15 years, and that's one of the things, you know, it's a bit of a sort of father-son thing than the fish market, and I left school uh, sort of 15 with no qualifications, partly because I was bunking off. You know, it's like I, hate no, I didn't, I didn't you know, hate school. I had no opinion about school. All I knew that it was I was wasting my time there. And when you're 14, 15, and you're starting to drink down the local pub, and you want a nice pair of trainers, you know, you gotta go and get some money. And I started to just not go to school. And uh, and my dad said, well if you're not going to go to school, you can come down the fish market. And he got me a job when I was 15, like a year before you're supposed to. You know that thing and. It seemed back then people didn't particularly care, you know. They just did your day's work and they pay you cash, and so that was it. Was over, and then two years later I got a Billingsgate fish porters badge, which to any sort, of, it's like you know there were certain things that you get as a working class fella, which people say, "Oh, this is you know what a result, you know what a touch you've had." This is in 1980. I got my fish porters license, and we were earning then two or three hundred pounds a week you imagine you know it was like
0: as a 17 year old
1: mm, you know that was my first job as it were
0: but then you left that
1: and you went to new york i did something that was people have not done it before i decided to give up my fish porters license against all um wasn't even advice it was just shock and horror when i told people i said i'm not doing this job anymore i don't want to I, i think there's something else out there from i'm not quite sure i mean if you ask a lot of not so much even working class kids, but you ask a lot of 16, 17-year-olds, they don't know what they want to do. you know. So they sort of just get trapped in a job, because and, and they haven't got the confidence to get out, to break away. And I think one of the things you can do is just just go, just leave your environment. So I, I, I'd i always sort of wanted to go to New York, and that's why I did. I went to uh, work in New York for a, a summer. And yeah, it was brilliant. Changed my life, really. In what way? Because I think what you do is you realise that you made a decision. Because, you know, life happens to you, doesn't it, really, to a certain extent. And then eventually you get to the point where you go, what can I do to make a difference, make my life not what it was meant to be? And because I thought I'm not going to be a Billingsgate Freshport the rest of my life, not because it was the worst job of my life, it just wasn't for me. And I didn't particularly want... This is really difficult for me to <laughs> talk about, but I, did, I didn't really like living in the East End that much. You know, back then it's, a, it's very difficult for people to understand that it was a pretty dull and you know, place to live and to going down the local pub every weekend and everyone was fighting at the end of the night and it just all seemed a little bit bleak. And I used to watch those films. There was, there was a series of films on TV, where I remember watching, you know, like the ones where it's sort of like Saturday night and Sunday morning. You know, the, I think the loneliness, of the long distance runner, those working class sort of northern and anyway, those films were basically where they show. Sort of angry young man who's not happy with his circumstances, not quite sure what to do about it. And that was sort of what I was. I just decided I had to do something. And so I ran off to New York and thought, you know, see what what happens. Basically, it taught me a lesson, you know, you just got, if you leave something, something else will happen. You can't live your life in fear. You couldn't be thinking, oh, what if I don't get another job? What if I go to New York and I don't really like it? You know, I had to think, just do it.
0: So you went and you um, loved it. Mm-hmm. And then you came back and you got another job. You were doing furniture You can do well with the everything. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I, I sort of came back to a, a UK that was very broken and down. And, uh, you know, thank God that's never going to happen again, eh? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no more boom and bust. Oh, yeah. Uh, so... I came back to the UK because the other lesson I sort of learned while I was away was that you can... I didn't want to be the guy who kept running around the world and then suddenly ended up having to do another crap job when he was 25. I didn't want to be that bloke either. So I came back to London thinking I needed to learn a set of skills or a trade or something and met a guy a couple of years before and he gave me a job as an apprentice, furniture maker, repairer, restorer and all that. And uh, with a view that we would um you know build the business up and then we'd expand and we'd make some money you know the holy grail back then was to move out to essex if you were in the east end you know that's what that was the dream ticket you sort of went and bought a house in chingford or louton or something like that and that period it went very well to about 87 when the economy really started to crash the business more or less failed and uh i wouldn't say i was disappointed when it ended in a way you know, because that once again you get to a stage and you're late in your mid twenties, late twenties, when suddenly you think, well, this is actually how my life's going to pan out, and you have a little wobble. I think you think, well, if I stick at this now, I will be either a doctor or I'll be a salesman or I'll be a fireman or whatever. You're running out of steam already in your late twenties, mid twenties, like you're really starting to, and you're getting more scared to take a chance. So it ending sort of did me a favour in a way. And so you went back to school? but I just thought, well, what am I going to do now, you know? It always bugged me that I hadn't got an education. I think anyone who leaves school with nothing, I always say on stage, I left school with a bottle opener, and that's the truth, you know, a bottle opener. And uh, I think I got something for a daffodil in primary school. <laughs> but I think they gave them to everyone, didn't they, the daffodil thing A first? I think that was a bit of a ruse to get you to... Uh, and it always bothered me. I literally walked into the... Institute of Further Education in Bethnal Green Road and said, look, what do you reckon? You know, what can you do? And they said, oh, well, just come in. It was like a return to studies class. And straight away, the woman said, look, we'll do your GCSE English. Uh, OK, I'm able to do that. At the end of that, she said, uh, there's a guy upstairs who runs an Open University Foundation course. Why don't you do that? It was one night a week. You went there and then you studied at home. But you got what they call like a credit at the end of it. And if you built these up, so I did that, and then at the end of that, it was suggesting, why, someone sort of said, or well, the guy who was taking the class with Les, he said, why don't you consider going full-time university? And I was like, hold on a minute, this is all getting a bit out of hand now, you know. It's like, I just couldn't, but then suddenly it was like, he said, you can do it, you know, just, and I did another foundation course with them in the arts, and then applied to go to City University in Clerkenwell, and they just, yeah, they said, no problem, you're in. So what seemed as sort of, from walking into this institute to suddenly, three years later, I'm on my way to university with a bag on my back, you know, going past a lot of the guys who I'd cleaned windows with for a few years. It was a very odd time, you know. What did they make of it? Or what do you, or what do you think, like, Billingsgate <laughs> Fish Market, Mickey, would have made of it? Made I don't you, know. I, it's like I all these things. If you look at people's lives, how they unfold... You know, if you've got the kid, obviously my 15-year-old, 16-year-old said to me, oh, you're going to go to university when you're 29. I said, what are you talking about? But it's like most things, you take a chance and it works out, and suddenly you're there, and suddenly it just seems so right. And I think I, well, I'd done so much, walking into a university to, to sit in lectures with guys who really knew what they were talking about and just being asked to read a few books, and write. it was like I was in, I loved it. Because, strangely enough, a lot of the stuff that I've sort of thought anyway about society and the way we organise the world, what these guys are saying is, yes, people have been thinking about this for centuries and this is what we've come up with so far. What would you like to learn about? And I love the social sciences and I love philosophy and, I, you know, the time of my life, as they say, at university. So you got a degree... I got a degree in social sciences and the media. And then how did you get from there to comedy? From there I went on to train to be a teacher. You know that thing that I think a lot of people think, oh, well, I could go back and do some good, which is a lovely place to start if you want to be a teacher. That's probably the good place, you know, but beyond that, you have to really want to be a teacher. And I think I sort of drifted into it. And before I knew it, I was in this school and I wasn't as up for it as I thought I was. And they know that. And before you know it, you're just miserable. So from that during that year when I was teacher training I started doing open spots just in comedy clubs and
0: What kind of inspired you to go and do that?
1: I just think it was years of being in every sort of situation where I'd and always looking for a laugh. Always sort of making people laugh. And growing up in a house which the funny thing was always the most important thing. So it's sort of I think growing up in a very serious house and I think that's rubbed off on me. And just genuinely watching a lot of it and thinking I think I could probably do this, you know.
0: And so it went really well.
1: Yeah, I had a great first two years when in competitions, and I sort—I think I hit the ground running because I had a lot of sort of life experiences and I had quite a lot to talk about and uh, a lot that I wanted to say. And then from there on, you learn very quickly that there's a difference between just talking and being funny. Pretty quickly though, oh no, they're not paid just to listen to you; they're paid to listen to you because there's a funny bit at the end or somewhere in there. And that's what you've now got to grapple with for the rest of your life.
0: And so it went really well. You eventually went to Edinburgh in 2007, wasn't it? Before yeah. You asked.
1: I went there a couple of times doing package shows where you do like a, say, free hander and a compare. Then I went back and did a half an hour with Nina Conti. We shared an hour.
0: And you got nominated for Best Newcomer.
1: Yeah, I for know. The if. And Awards. I took a lot of ribbing for that. Why? You know, because I've been around for so long. You know, it was like. You having a laugh or what? And I'm like, I'm new here. You know, this is the criteria. So you did that and it <laughs> went well.
0: And then your show that you took there last year is the one that you're on tour with now. What chance change? And yeah. so you've basically gone from dropping out of school in Billingsgate Fish Market to now being full time comedian <laughs> with a degree.
1: <laughs> oh, and yes. As you
0: talk about in the show, veering towards middle class.
1: Yeah, well, that's if the show is ab- about anything. Ultimately, it's it's about this sort of slightly lost place that you find yourself in like a lot of people where if you've got what you call like a, a solid working class background and then suddenly what was it my little boy said to me yesterday I made him some Weetabix and uh, he looked at me he said he said Daddy you didn't put any tahini on it <laughs> and I just thought oh dear we. I think things have changed I, ta- I said what he said Mummy puts tahini on my Weetabix I said alright fair enough Uh, And that's sort of... You're you're sort of lost somewhere between having all this loyalty to your working class past and, you know, having a sort of... But realising that you have aspired and you wanted what you perceive to be a better life and now you have it. But you sort of rally against that a little bit, you know. Sometimes, uh, you know, when I go in the deli and the the artichokes seem very, very expensive. (laughs) And I don't even like them that much. You know, and I stand there thinking... What am I doing buying artichokes for on a Sunday lunch? Do
0: you ever see your Billingsgate fish market, mates?
1: Yeah, yeah. I've I've been very fortunate in having been very sort of, um, not so much selective, partly selective, but very lucky in meeting some really great blokes throughout all the stuff I've done. And I'm a firm believer in the last thing you want to do in life is just have one set of friends who are all like, you know, just all talk about the same, all from the same place. If you're really lucky and you get to experience different things, keep those friends, keep the people you meet along the way. And
0: so, what do they make of your new tahini lifestyle?
1: Well, I think they've <laughs> probably got a little bit of it going on themselves. Uh, but if I go back to the East End, you tend to have live your life in a fairly of sort of different frames. You, want, you you have different parts of your personality which will come out when you're in different I don't know, arenas as it were. And I try and talk about that on stage, about how I can be at a dinner party and I'm sort of, you know, I'll have to be a certain type of person, but then if I go back into the pub in Bethnal Green, I will start talking more like an East Ender and saying, who's that fucking idiot over there? Because that's, I enjoy that aspect of it. Whereas... <laughs> it's just, I think most people now have it gets on my nerves a little bit. Everyone's saying, we're sort of a classless society now. It's a, big, a lot of cobblers. We're obsessed with class in this country and we're obsessed with people's behaviour and what we perceive them to be. And consequently, you know that. I mean, sometimes when I, I go back to the East End, I feel a little bit poncy. But then sometimes when I'm walking around East Dulwich, I feel a little bit common. You know, maybe I should put some trousers on Sure show me about Pants <laughs> me, pants are the, are the best. With a can of Kestrel. <laughs> do you know where I come from, I say? You know what? Uh, you know I'm proper street,
0: me, yeah. Um, can I do a little quiz on you before we talk about your live dates? It's a how middle class are you quiz. Fantastic. I'm going to ask you some questions. First one, how often do you recycle the Guardian?
1: Ah, oh, dear God. Well, you know, I often talk about buying the big paper and what pressure it is you know you do look at it don't you you think look at that paper man I've got two days off look at that paper (laughs) what am I supposed to do it luckily enough I'm not too interested in sport that tends to go out the window so that might get recycled almost as I'm on my way back from the shop. Okay. <laughs> and I have often said it sometimes does feel like it's, it's 170 for a TV guide, doesn't it, or is it one now? Because I'll often look at it at the end and think, I haven't really done a lot with me Saturday Guardian this week. I can often put it in the recycle almost untouched.
0: Okay. <laughs> we'll go for frequently. Yeah. Um. Do you use balsamic vinegar?
1: Oh, yeah. All the time. I mean... We have a cup in the morning when we get up straight away, <laughs> just, just to make us feel successful. And, uh, yeah, it's everywhere. I, you know, I'm, I'm sick to death of the sight of Rocket. <laughs> if I see Rocket anymore, I just think, oh, just give me some lettuce, will ya? <laughs> Iceberg. Um, have you ever gone to
0: a gastropub for lunch?
1: <sighs> There's a bear shit in the woods. <laughs> I live in East Dulwich. We don't cook dinner in East Dulwich. We all go to the gastro pub and pay huge amounts of money for mediocre food. Okay, that's a yes. Have
0: you ever had a discussion about where to buy the best cappuccino?
1: Yes. Pret do fantastic coffee. Reasonably priced. Okay. Well, this is not because I'm not well. This is because I spend a lot of time on the road. And you tend to look around and go, no, don't go in Starbucks and buy a sandwich because they're crap and they're destroying the world. Right. But... They do a nice caramel latte. (laughs) So we'll allow them to destroy the world. I'm a bit miserable. I'm in central Manchester. I'm going to go and have a caramel latte. Okay. The world's going to have to look after itself.
0: (laughs) And finally, when you're writing, do you often use a semicolon?
1: I know how to use one. I know where it should be.
0: And do you get cross if it's ever misused?
1: No, but I'm really against all this punctuation pedantry, I just think it makes people scared to write, you know, and, it, and it's also if you're spending the whole time reading a book thinking, he, he shouldn't have put that there It's like just enjoy it, will you? Unless someone's completely writing you know, everything in capital letters, or just, com- if someone's writing complete shit, you know, if it's really well punctuated, what are you going to do? Are you going to write the thing, that you go, this is actually interesting but the guy's not too good with his apostrophe S. The apostrophe S I think upsets most people. <laughs> yeah. I think that is the one when And I think it confuses people the most. I've I've seen people crying, writing signs, thinking, what side does this apostrophe go on? (laughs) Boys' shoes.
0: It's a tricky one.
1: Well, how many boys are you selling the shoes to?
0: (laughs) Well, I think that puts you... In the middle, is that a jar of sun-dried tomato paste lurking in your fridge? But not yet officially middle class. If you're not an apostrophe Nazi. No,
1: no, that. I can't. I could never become that.
0: So, Mickey Flanagan, you're on tour. The next date you've got is Salford. You're playing the Lowry, Lowry even, on Sunday, the 17th of May. And then you've got a few dates at the Soho Theatre in London.
1: Yes. 21st. 21st. 23rd. I'm oh, sorry. You've this is efficient. something that's come hard to me, This, but I get told off for not doing this. You know, I go on shows and... Just go on and on and then they come out and the agent says, Did you tell them when it was? And I go, Oh no, I didn't say anything. Twenty-first, twenty-second, twenty-third at the Soho Theatre.
0: And then a couple more dates after that, Brighton and Canterbury, but people can get all of these dates on your website. They can
1: get the dates on the website and they can get tickets for the Soho Theatre on at the Soho dot com. And uh 0207 they
0: didn't do that, first. Well. do that well that's very
1: good you should it's, be on an advert I should be in marketing man I just um, <laughs> you know I could, I could sort out all this recession nonsense if they gave me a chance so your website is Yeah, that's right yeah
0: Mickey Flanagan. thanks so much for thank you very on. much Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Marin. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to yesyes. Yes, marsha.com forward slash off the mic